Hey everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Gabe Dowrick. Hi, Ben. Hello, Gabe. And we have a return special guest, sound editor Sam Haywood. Welcome, Sam, to the pod again. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you back. So every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today we'll be reviewing two action comedy films, both based on pre-existing intellectual property, about dishonoured military operatives led by a cool cucumber colonel who seek redemption and revenge after being betrayed on a secret mission. Wow, I got that out. (laughs) It's the losers versus the A-team. Let the rogue operation begin. So, Sam, this week you suggested this combination for a Twin Movies episode, and Gabe and I hadn't really thought of these as Twin Movies, but of course they are. Tell us about your loving affection for both of these movies. (laughs) Well, I I really enjoyed the A-Team at the time, and uh, I'm a big comic fan, as I mentioned on the last pod I was on, and The Losers is based off a comic which I collected. And um, I remember enjoying these both these films, and I remember that I felt like The Losers suffered from the A-Team's release, even though neither were huge hits. But I do think The Losers, maybe the title hurt it as well because it's not a great title, to be honest. But we'll get to that. Yeah, so I just... I, lo- I love I love the comic and I, I quite enjoyed the movie and it it sprang up as a fairly obvious example of twin movies for me. Hey Gabe, can you please smash the nerd alert? <laughs> <laughs> we have our big comic book fan back on the pod. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Is that I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. Is that the noise that the nerd alert makes? <laughs> I've got no idea. You can sound the nerd alert for about Five things I do per hour, but I just thought I had to try and smash Sam with it then. Fair enough. All right. Let's uh, kick up this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 23rd of April, 2010, The Losers was released. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. A CIA special forces team is betrayed and left for dead by their superiors, galvanising them to mount an offensive on the CIA. So, Sam, let's kick it off with you. Did you originally catch The Losers when it was released at the cinema and how was that experience? Yes, I did and um, it was a pretty good experience because it was fairly uh, true to the source material uh, and, yeah, no, I enjoyed it. It was, a, it was a romp of a movie. Were you alone in the cinema? <laughs> no, I think I, I think I took my ex-wife and that my, might be why she's my ex-wife. <laughs> Gabe. That's all it took. (laughs) Gabe, was yours a romantic date when you saw The Losers at the cinema or did you catch it on video on demand? Yeah, as a marriage ending uh, experience. No, uh, I didn't. Uh, I think I must have seen this just on DVD sometime in the early 2010s. It's a good DVD movie. It's not bad. It's not bad. Okay, well, as for me, uh, third one off the rank, I actually caught this for the first time on Video On Demand exclusively for this pod. This falls into that category of one of those movies I wasn't really hungry to see at the time when it was released and as a result just never got around to it. And also, it didn't have great reviews, so it just sort of sat on my when I'm kind of desperate Netflix mental cue. Uh, But, hey... This episode was a good opportunity to try and uh, catch it. 
So let's then jump to 11th of June 2010, shortly afterwards, when the A-Team was released. And here's its synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. A group of Iraq War veterans look to clear their name with the US military, who suspect the four men of committing a crime for which they were framed. Sam, over to you. Talk me through when and how you first watched The A-Team. Uh, once again, I took my poor ex-wife to see this one at the films, <laughs> at the theatre. <laughs> so This is basically uh, divorced by a thousand paper cuts. Oh, yeah, I'm seeing everything's making sense now. I understand. This is like therapy. Yeah. No, and um, I, I enjoyed this one uh, a lot at the cinema. It was a, it was a roller coaster of a ride and, and – um, it didn't really disappoint me. I've got to admit, I'm I'm a little bit too young to have been into the A Team when it was on TV in the '80s. Uh, my brothers were into it, but um, Ben, why don't you tell us what that was like? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> old man Phelps likes to sing a song oh. about the time that he was young. Shots fired. Yeah, shots fired indeed. Yeah, look, okay. I have dated myself by talking about when I was working at the cinema in the late 90s at uni and stuff. So, yeah, subtract 10 more years from that and I would have been, I don't know, 10-ish or so. But I recall watching this TV show on Friday nights in Canberra where we had two channels, ABC, our national broadcaster, and then one like kind of commercial channel. It was a mash of everything else, which was meant to be a mash of the best shows from all other channels. But it was probably a case of mashing what was available. But fortunately, the A-Team, the TV show was. So I grew up on this one and Knight Rider and uh, watched these on a Friday night after school after a big week on the books as a primary school kid. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And I don't think this was the sort of show that was repeated much, was it? I mean, I know shows like The Golden Girls were certainly replayed over and over and over, like 10 years after their closing episode but I don't think this one was. And I feel it's a bit like Faulty Towers that people remember it being on TV much more than what it was because if it was played a lot on repeat, you guys who are a bit younger than me, only by a couple of years, would have probably seen it, right? Yeah, I don't remember ever seeing it. Yeah, I don't remember really seeing it. I see, you know, I see a lot of references to it on, you know, The Simpsons or whatever, but um, I didn't it, – it certainly wasn't as prevalent in my life as, say, MacGyver or – Oh, what was the other one you mentioned? Uh, Night Rider. Night Rider. Yeah, I, I, I have, I have a little bit of a memory of Night Rider, and obviously Baywatch was huge, but um, no, not the A Team. Yeah, I mean, it certainly meant that if you know Dirk Benedict or whoever was the original Face Man turned up in a cameo, I would have had no idea. For example, which he does, which we'll get to. <laughs> right. Okay. There you go. So I miss, I missed that one. I didn't pick any of that either. <laughs> really. I thought you guys were both being sarcastic. No, he actually does. He and the guy playing Murdoch actually appear in cameos in the 2010 A-Team. Right. Well, that must have been magical for people who caught it. Well, it sounds like you guys were both more discerning as kids than I was. But when it comes to being uh, discerning, I did also go and see this film, the feature film adaptation in the cinemas myself. And... uh, it was a good big screen film and I had a great time, which we'll get to. Uh, so for me, this was actually a movie experience. Gabe, over to you. When did you first watch The A-Team, the 2010 film? Uh, I must have seen this on DVD. I didn't see it at the cinema. When you say it's like a good experience at the cinema, does that mean you like 
fist pumping in the air when the tank is like shooting backwards in the sky. You go, yeah, wow, this is a great experience. Yeah. Oh, it is so funny you say that because I didn't actually fist pump, but that exact shot and scene that you refer to is the bit where I looked at myself, you know, like almost a third person perspective, like a ghost coming out of my body and went, you're having a great time. This is good fun. Right. <laughs> and then you like looked over your shoulder and there's Sam sitting with his uh, miserable ex-wife. You know? <laughs> and you're going, yeah. And he's going, yeah. And your partners are going, oh, God, how do we get, how do we get dragged to this shit? <laughs> yeah, see, my partner actually wouldn't have come to see this movie. So I guess I was just thinking to myself, this is just a boys movie by myself with a trench coat, uh, not, not one to share with the beloved. Smart. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> let's let's jump to a bit of a history lesson before our review, shall we, into a comparison of these twin movies and how we got there. So we've already mentioned that The A-Team was based on the TV show from the 1980s. This one's interesting. This was in a window of time, if you guys both recall, when they were basically just trying to remake any possible piece of intellectual property, but particularly 1980s TV shows. The idea of saying, let's take all of that recognisable storyline, the, the characters, the the nostalgia, and basically cram it into a two-hour movie with a bigger budget with more recognisable contemporary stars and, you know, make it and they will come, which often didn't happen at all. So this film kind of was going in and out of production hell for quite a long time through the mid-'90s. Uh, all pushed by the producer and creator Stephen J. Cannell. And he was the guy that had the idea of updating it to the Gulf War, but the obviously the production went on for so long, or the pre-production, that was eventually pushed to the Iraq War. Um, so that's how he got there with that film. As for The Losers, again, based on pre-existing intellectual property, uh, as Sam mentioned earlier, this one's based on a comic series, uh, it's actually uh, by a couple of guys, Andy Diggle, and I'm going to test your memory here, Sam. Who's the illustrator? Oh, I don't know. I can look it up. I've got it on in, in my cupboard. Just a second. No. Who, who is the illustrator? His name's Mark Simpson, but he goes by the pen name of Jock, and he's a Brit. Oh, okay. He's the guy also behind 2000 AD, oh. and in recent times, Batman Wolverine. Oh, he's got a very kind of – I like his style. It's very unique and um, it's not stock at all. Right. Are the, are the frames that they use in the film directly from the uh, comic book? In the opening sequence, I believe it is. In the end sequence when they kind of cut from a shot to the a comic version, that's not – that's original. And I'm not sure if that's the same illustrator or not. Right. Interesting. Okay, so it looks like we got to these two films just by, again, serendipity, uh, even though they're both based on pre-existing stories and characters, uh, essentially no competition, and they just came out by sheer coincidence within about two months of each other. So let's jump to our review. Let's start with the first film that came out, The Losers. So, Sam, I'll throw it to you. Did you like it? What worked for you about this film and what didn't float your boat? Uh, I did like it. I liked it a lot. Um, and it was interesting watching it a second time in comparison to the A-Team because you don't – I wasn't effectively um, pitting them against each other the first time I saw them. But this time, obviously, I was I was conscious of that. Um, 
I found uh, I, I really liked how efficient the opening act was. And and it set it set the stakes at a far more moral kind of level. Where like in that opening sequence, they're trying they have to save the kids from the from the um, impending bombing of that compound, and it really sets them up as good guys straight away. Like they're they're not they're not after money. They're not they're not doing it for any. They're just got to save those kids and uh, and. Overall, the state, you know, there was there's these crazy supersonic nukes that they've got to stop, and the bond, the villain was very cartoonish and bondy, and and I like that. I like, I, I don't want to have to. Th- it just felt very efficient and very easy to follow. Um, <laughs> I like a movie that's easy to follow. <laughs> I do. I, I mean, yeah, totally. Compared to, to compared to the A Team, which I'll get into a bit later, but it just it didn't have too many strings. It was just like, oh, okay, well, these guys, these guys are very obviously the goodies and, you know, obviously there's a double cross in there, but that's that's fun. Um, I didn't like, I think this fell into, you've spoken about this before, Ben. I feel like this film falls in that period where they hadn't quite got the digital cameras right yet and and it does suffer from that video look a little bit. Um some of the CGI is a little bit average. I feel like the budget probably wasn't quite as high as the A-Team, although it must have cost a fair bit still. Um, what else did I – I really liked – there was – <laughs> I was watching it and I was like, geez, there's a lot of nice watches in this film. All the characters are wearing quite nice watches. And then at the end, uh, spoilers, Max gets rolled for his watch, which was which was quite fun. Um yeah, I, I I really enjoyed the losers and um, and it had quite a diverse cast as well, which which I think was natural. It wasn't shoehorned in. Apparently, this film actually features like one of the top uh, five rewatchables under Watch My Watch, this weird fetish web watch site for people who are obsessed with like uh, men's wrist jewelry. Is that right? No, I made that up. Oh. <laughs> Oh, there's a, there's a very specific shot of his watch. I think it's a Breitling or something. It's a very specific shot of his watch, and it's it's a very nice watch. Yeah, yeah. There's just not enough shots of Chris Evans' feet to really hit that uh, fetishistic. Um... <laughs> yeah, Tarantino might have the uh, fetish with the uh, toes and so on in all of his movies, but for Sylvain White, the director of The Losers, it's clearly men's jewelry, particularly watches. Yes, yes. I'll have to. Have to look at his his episodes of TV that he's directed since and see if he he kept that flourish up. So conceptually, Sam, you got this film. Is it the best version of a CIA forces team that are betrayed, that are left for dead? Like, does it maximise the most of this concept that it shares with the A team? Uh, I think it does it better than the A team, to be honest. But I don't think it's the best version of this film. Uh, I can't think of any other versions off the top of my head. Well, this. What are you guys? The Specialist, that uh, 1994 Sylvester Stallone movie, basically has the exact same opening sequence. Right. Where Stallone and James Woods are off on a mission in sort of South America somewhere and they're planted bombs to blow up a compound and then kids arrive and they're like, we can't do it. And Jimmy Woods is like, we got to do it. We're ba-, you know, and then the kids get blown up or whatever and then Sly becomes a rogue operator. I like it. That sounds that sounds great. I'm into it already. Yeah. Actually, Gabe, hearing you describe that, 
I feel like these two films are just doomed and will get bad reviews from you because if The Specialist has Stallone and James Woods in it and it's the espionage thriller genre, like what what could possibly compete with that film for you? Well, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Rod Steiger, Eric Roberts, Sharon Stone. I mean- Eric Roberts. Oh, wow. Okay. It's raining Gabe classics. Yep. That's right. So, <laughs> so unfortunately, everything will be compared to The Specialist. Um, and later when we do awards for these movies, I'm going to include The Specialist in mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, before I throw it to you, Gabe, Sam, I'm dying to hear what you think about something you hinted at before- and that is this film perhaps suffers from being in that window of early adaptations where there wasn't quite confidence in adapting source material from comic books or graphic novels into a movie. What do you think about the visual attribute where they take essentially frames of characters and they transform or morph into the comic panels and back again and have the same sort of font as a comic to alert you to particular destinations and the names of uh, actors behind the characters. Like it's really leaning very heavily into saying this is based on a copy, comic property. What are your thoughts on that? I love it. I'm into it. I'm into it. Especially like, oh, we're in Miami now. Great. Oh, we're in Dubai now. Great. I, I know where I am. I don't have to think about it. I'm, I, can just, I can just go along for the ride. All right. Well, let me put it this way. You've got the Hulk, right, which came out in 2003, I think. And that film actually has storyboards on the screen where you actually have the screen divided up like a comic book panel and the camera will kind of zoom in or the screen will fill the frame and it becomes a movie, right? Mm. And several shots where you'll see like, say, a cactus and the cactus is drawn like a comic and then it kind of morphs into a real cactus, pull back, and we're in a desert location. I love it. Let me play uh, devil's advocate to this, right? <laughs> okay, I get what they're doing. And if, I think if I was Ang Lee back in 2003, who may not have the same affinity in history to comics as others do, and he's thought, okay, I need to make this film Hulk serious, and perhaps Sylvain White, who has a great uh, appreciation for this particular series, The Losers, thinks the same thing. I want to really tie it to its DNA. It can't stand alone. But- isn't that kind of a bit like taking, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, right, and uh, in the movie kind of like trying to infuse it with aerial ten font and parchment paper texture to try and say, oh, this story is based on a book. Therefore, we will infuse the visuals with a sense of literature. But lots of great movies do that. Yeah, but look- I know the comic book has the visuals, so I get the idea of trying to marry the visuals of a story to the visuals of a movie, which is a bit different from trying to marry the words in a page to a movie. But why do that if you're adapting it? Why try and straddle worlds rather than just say, you know what, take the source material, we've got it. We may cast actors that look the same or may not. We may keep the character design like the crazy blonde tips and weird facial hair of Chris Evans. And- <laughs> Because he looks the same. I picked up the uh, graphic novel and did some Googling and stuff, and he looks to be the same character off the page, which is obviously, I assume, the Sylvain White, the director, and others being really loyal and respectful of the source material. And that that I actually understand and get, much like you might try and represent Dracula or Frankenstein to be similar to the source material on the page. But 
why kind of mix the few or fuse the visuals? Like, why do the paneling on screen? I'm not totally against it. I don't hate it. I'm just trying to interrogate why do it. Because if you look at Marvel movies, there's no sense that they're trying to bring the comics alive. You know, they're just adaptations. So there's no need to try and show the paneling from the comics, even though they actually might use the same poses and stuff. I don't know. They're mostly two-dimensional uh, characters. That's pretty comic booky. <laughs> oh, shots fired boom. again! Boom! More shots fired. Yeah. Go have another <laughs> coffee, Gabe. Jesus Christ! <laughs> Look, Watchmen—a great example, right? Zack Snyder's Watchmen, uh, and also Batman v Superman. Like both those films have shots that are pretty much uh, tributes or copies, depending on your interpretation to the source material, like the framing of a character and so on. Oh, massively. Yeah, both Watchmen and 300 um, very much take, like, it's the comic book was like the storyboard of the movie. Yeah, right, okay. But they actually don't infuse with uh, anything more than the font from the page, do they? Like, uh, Yes, but, but what about the Watchmen TV series where they very often had the font from, the yellow font from the book's, to at the start of a scene, they have it on the on the screen, and they they. Do you remember? Yeah, and I don't mind the font. It's more like when they basically do that morph between right. a comic book book panel where you see the cartoon character, right, the drawn illustrated character, and then it kind of like morphs into real Chris Evans or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a. I think because that particular comic is such a um a, a bold style. I think they just you know. Really wanted to lean into that. Yeah. Okay. You know, Sin City. Sin City is probably the best example of 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 a movie which is super super true to the books in that every line of dialogue is about just lifted from the page and and every 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 camera angle is is that of the book. So um, you know, it doesn't. Although and and they did do the you know similar thing with the yellow bastard he he's coloured in yellow and everything else black and white, so um, I don't know I, I I think it's a choice and um, best bit of advice I ever got from filmmaking was you've got to mean it and um, whether whether it works or not if you if you mean it then at least at least you had a crack nice yeah I I agree with that and. I actually think Sin City does mean it and so does Batman v Superman and Watchmen in that they really commit to it so much they're basically replicating in live action some of those frames. Mm. Whereas I think in Losers, my personal opinion, is that because it's such a naturalistic storyline, he's trying to tie it more to the comic by having those drawn panels in the movie. Whereas the other two, three, three films, Sin City, Batman and Watchmen, are so stylized, you can just bring them alive in their own world mm. and it works. That's just my personal take. Yep. But let's throw it across to Gabe. Gabe, what are your thoughts about The Losers? Um, I look broadly, I like the movie, but I am here as a total advocate of Jason Patrick as Max. Frankly, I don't really want to talk about anything else. This dude... Uh, as 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 Sam described it, is having a hell of a crack. He is he is he's giving it a red hot go. He's by far the best. He's going for it. Hey, mate, mate. I'm a huge fan of every choice he makes in this movie. Um, it's great. Any moment he's not on screen, I'm like, just bring Jason Patrick back. <laughs> 
Wow. Okay. I hated Jason Patrick in this film. Fuck. I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. Oh, he's so great. He's so great. It drove me crazy. And as I'm watching it- That's the best. I knew at least Gabe, and now Sam's also joined in, would say he committed to a choice and you respect that commitment to a bold choice. My response would be he did commit to a choice and it was a bad choice. (laughs) Not only am I- Like, not only is Jason Patrick not in the same movie as anyone else in this film, he's on a different planet. And I'm just thinking to myself, is it because the director who's French didn't speak good English and thus couldn't decipher or distinguish a good performance from a bad performance? Or let me say this, a consistent performance. What do you mean? But but you're working off the assumption that it's not a good performance. I'm I'm telling you it's fucking great and there's no movie. You pick any movie that wouldn't be improved by just dropping this character into that movie. Jeffrey Dean Morgan is playing a naturalistic character, more or less. Zoe Saldana is as well. In fact, they all are. Chris Evans is sort of like a little bit elevated. So they're playing it more naturalistic. And the director himself did say he was attracted to this property because it was, in his words, a grounded story with like real characters and real moral choices set in a real world, right? And- I guess he was trying to replicate that in the film as well, given that was his original attraction to the comic. But then how do you reconcile that with Jason Patrick on 400%? Like, we're watching this film and I'm watching uh, the character of Wade played by Holt McCallany, I think it is. Oh, yeah, great. Yep. He is looking at him and I feel he's going, what the fuck is this actor doing? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> he looks perplexed. Jealousy. Jealousy. And I feel like the camera is capturing a true internal reaction to this. And Holt's like, what have I got myself into? Like, I didn't expect this to be the character. Sure, I'm the henchman on the 2IC to this baddie. But someone, like, w- what's going on? Like, I feel like he's, like, desperately eyes darting off screen to the director saying, should we go for another take maybe? Just, you know, tone it down. Like, one for him, one for you. Um uh, I I was perplexed. And to me, Jason Patrick, brace yourself, boys, ruins this movie for me in what I have otherwise have enjoyed. Oh, my God, no. Yeah, totally. That's right. No way. He makes this movie. <laughs> I won't sit here and have you besmirch- That's right. Officer Alex Shaw from Speed 2 Cruise Control. Uh, oh, All right. There'll be so much besmirching. I will besmirch over the besmirching. Like, <laughs> so in Speed, right, to Cruise Control- I actually think he's actually pretty good in that film. He's more grounded. but Oh, he's great. He's great in Sleepers. He's great in The Lost Boys. Yeah, so is the problem here for me, and maybe not for you guys. There is no problem here. (laughs) I said for me, not for you. Is the problem, (laughs) Gabe's just there, just brimming with frustration. Is the problem here for me in that this? I think this is an actor who is best playing heroes, protagonists, and he's been asked to play a villain here. And you know when a character or an actor wants to kind of stretch themselves and do a different genre or go to playing a baddie instead of a goodie, you know, to avoid being, you know, too narrow cast. I I think he has said to himself, this is my chance to finally be a baddie and I'm going to go full on baddie. Like you mentioned before, Sam, like a James Bond villain. Absolutely. And no one reined him in, which you guys both like. I love it. But I don't get it because don't you feel he's in a different movie to the rest of the cast? 
No, no. Um, Oscar Jainada, who plays Cougar, he's um, they're all they're all caricatures of of you know their. Oscar is sleeping the entire film. I can't. Yeah, but that's his character. No, but that's what I'm saying. He can't overact because he's basically so muted. Sure. That there's no opportunity to kind of like go OTT. I don't get it, Ben. Were you watching a different movie? Because like Jason Patrick is big, but like Chris Evans in his fucking stupid honest Abe, huge honest Abe beard, that's that's not some small choice. It's not, I don't, you know, uh, all the bits where he's like doing gun hands and then uh, Oscar Nada like shoots them from the distance or the planes, like Jeffrey Dean Morgan stands in front of an exploding fucking jet. I love that scene. Like four feet away and just stand, like this movie is full of redonkulous stupid shit. Yeah. I Like <laughs> what? It's not quite as redonkulous as flying a tank, but it's up there. That's right. Like I don't, I, like were you somehow watching, like what's a strip back, like uh, Soderbergh's Haywire? <laughs> you know, it's not like they dropped fucking Jason Patrick into that. You know, this movie already feels dialed up. It, it it felt like it fit it it fit to me. It's not Patriot Games. Nice. <laughs> Look, as someone who you know enjoys those Tom Clancy films, I agree. It ain't no Patriot Games. But <laughs> <laughs> I walked into that one. <laughs> but I will say this: you're right, 100 percent right, Gabe. Like. There are so many beats in this movie that are just so over the top. Like that scene with Jeffrey Dean Morgan, who plays Clay, um, basically just sort of playing chicken with a speeding motorbike and a plane behind him. It's like double chicken. And there's a ridiculous explosion. And not only is it not the cliche, I'm walking away from the explosion, he's actually facing the explosion as the plane, you know, just bursts into flames within metres of him. However, that's the director in my view, actually dialing up to 400% for the staging. But Jeffrey Dean Morgan isn't particularly acting at that Patrick, you know, that Jason Patrick level. That's a director. Now, Chris Evans, I agree with. He's big uh, and I would say he's somewhere between the rest of the cast and Jason Patrick. But the rest of them, like Idris Elba and stuff, they're not going big at all. Like Columbus Short's just playing a pretty regular character who wants to get home and seeing his baby. I don't think everyone else is at the same level. That's my problem. It's inconsistent. Did the rest of the cast aren't as awesome as Jason Patrick? And there's a reason why he's been in <laughs> given great performances in iconic movies. And Jeffrey Dean Morgan, who I like, was a villain in that movie where he terrorised Hillary Swank by hiding in the crawl space. Like, <laughs> And he was also in Grey's Anatomy. Oh, was he a main cast member, was he? Uh, for a little while, he was a dying patient that Catherine Hegel's character falls in love with and marries just before he dies. Ah. Let me say this about Jeffrey Dean Morgan. And maybe this will come up in the uh, awards down the track. For some reason, I still feel he doesn't get his dues. And I saw him most recently in The Walking Dead. Uh, and I don't know, I just find him incredibly charismatic. There's just something I find him very naturalistic and obviously he's a great anti-hero because he has that kind of brooding malevolence. Oh, I think that makes him yeah. <laughs> what if um what if what if Jason Patrick was playing Clay and Jeffrey Dean Morgan was playing Max? Okay, I'll go you one better. What if Jason Patrick played everyone? <laughs> <laughs> so is it like that Bob Dylan film, uh You're Not Here with Jason Patrick playing all the characters? <laughs> And it's called The Jason Loses. I yeah. like that. So the sex scene between Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Zoe Saldana, which is now just between Jason Patrick and Jason Patrick Electric. 
No, it's more like um, it's more like uh, Eddie Murphy's The Nutty Professor than uh, than than Bob Dylan, which had multiple actors playing the one character. That's true. Or is it like that scene from Bean John Malkovich, <laughs> where Bean John, where John Malkovich is in that restaurant? He's dressed as several women and so on with fake breasts. Jason Patrick is everyone. He is Zoe Saldana. I like it. I like it. Nice. Let's say that for the sequel pitch. Okay. Um, any other sort of thoughts uh, from either of you guys? Uh, Gabe, you haven't quite answered that big question for the Twin Movies pod. Like, is this sort of like the best execution of the concept about a betrayed CIA team? You know, a group of anti-heroes? Well, I mean, I feel like that movie's been made quite a lot of times. Look, I have to say, I, I've i seen The Losers a couple times now and um, I enjoyed it a lot more than I remembered when I watched it. And interestingly, I know you guys mentioned a budget earlier and I won't say what the budget for this film was yet because I don't want to um, spoil that for later, but for the amount of money this movie cost, it's pretty fucking good. Like, it's pretty amazing. Um you know, it doesn't reinvent the wheel, but it's just a just a darn good time. It's efficient. It's a very efficient um, film. I think I, I I really liked it. There's one thing, uh, just as as a direct comparison to the A Team, I really don't like that style of editing where they intercut the planning of a heist with the performance of the heist, and they do it a bunch of times in the A Team, and I feel like it's a lazy way of of inserting too much fucking. Um, you know, explanation in, in into the film. Like it, it, they, they shot the planning of the heist and it, and it takes too long, so they intercut it with the action of the heist. And they, they do that a lot in the A-Team and it ruined um, Guy Ritchie's King Arthur film as well, I think, that that style. And the losers don't do that. They just they just go from scene to scene. It's very linear and it, and it, and it, and it's efficient and it works. Just, yeah, one idea at a time. Exactly. Yeah, look, I mostly agree with both of you guys. I do think efficient can also mean um, simple and too simple. So it's walking that line, isn't it, between what is a clean storyline with an A to B with a clean character development opposed to something that's muddy and confusing and doesn't actually add anything. And muddy can be complex and vice versa and efficient can be too simple and two-dimensional. It's about finding that right balance. I kind of agree with both of you. It's reasonably efficient in that sense. It knows what it is mostly, except for Jason Patrick. It knows what it is. It knows its tone. It It's delivering, I think, on what you expect if you're a reader of the comic or not. There aren't any surprises to this film, and I think that relates to its efficiency. Like it just locks into the tone, the storyline, like we're chasing this guy called Max, and you go from A to B. Now, I recently saw another film called The Rhythm Section with Blake Lively. Have either of you guys seen that film? I have not. No. So that film's one of those films that's kind of suffered, I think, in its release during COVID-19 and that didn't get the same release. Or, like many films, it was destined for the cinema. They look at it and go, you know what? Let's dump it on premium video on demand instead. And it's basically the Nikita storyline. It's about a woman who loses her family in a terrorist attack uh, becomes a junkie even though she's originally an Oxford scholar and then has an opportunity to basically try and track down her killers and she's coached by Jude Law. So very similar to Nikita. Uh, what's the other film that had Scarlett Johansson as well who played a female assassin? The one by Jean-Luc Godard. Lucy? 
I think it's Lucy. Wait, Jean-Luc Godard? You mean Luc Besson? Oh, Luc Besson. Sorry. <laughs> what the fuck? The other French Euro action director. <laughs> Does Jude Law turn out to be the villain in the rhythm section? Uh, do you want to know? Do you want spoilers? I mean, is it just the hitman version of Captain Marvel? No, he doesn't. <laughs> uh, look, he's basically just Nikita, essentially. Uh, but in that film there- And there's Salt as well and also the uh, Jennifer, Lawrence, Jennifer Lawrence film- uh, Red Sparrow. Sparrow. Right. So in all these films, though, much like James Bond, you go forward with the character's journey and you go from- their development as they become, you know, they start off in the lowest place and they develop progressively throughout the film. But often what they do is they go from location to location to location, but you never go back to a location. Because if you do that, you sort of feel subconsciously like the film's going backwards Mm. because you're going backwards in geography. Like a video game. Yeah, exactly. So you have to move forward from like border to border. And the rhythm section does this annoying thing where it always returns to a home base which might make sense in real life, but for a film, it just feels to slow the film down. Mm. I think what this film does and the A-Team does is that it does move forward. Mm. So you go from place to place to place. And so you change location as you change um, a discovery as to who is, you know, the mastermind or to get the MacGuffin or whatever it might be. So in that sense, I agree, the film's efficient. So on that note, shall we jump to our review of the A-Team? Yes, all right, let's switch gears, change uh, lanes. So, Sam, starting with you, what did you like? Uh, what grinded your gears? And was this a good execution of the disavowed CIA team? Um, yeah, so I liked it a lot when I saw it originally, um, but not so much on the on the repeat viewing just uh, the other night. Um, I have mixed feelings about this film. Uh, I find myself, I found myself detached in the drama scenes and not very engaged, but then I couldn't help but getting pulled in and becoming invested during the action sequences. Um, they're very well, they're, they're kind of the big set pieces are very well um, put together to draw you in and, and, and that. But I don't know. It just seemed very dated to me in terms of like, I don't think they would make this film with as many blind spots as it has today. Uh, interestingly, I feel like it f- fell in that time period when the, both this film and the losers fall into that time period where they were very reluctant to use Middle Eastern villains for, for, for good reason. Uh, but they, they just lazily swap them out for South Americans or Mexicans. Like the opening scene in in the A-Team, which I think goes for too long to set them up as disavowed, they they, they have the very, very stereotyped Mexican general. Although it should be said, Yul Vasquez, who plays him, is an awesome actor. Yeah, he's great. He's great, but it just seems a bit. It's just a little bit on the nose. Hey, and and the and the Bradley Cooper stuff. <laughs> like he, if if Jason Patrick is over the top with his Bond villain, like Bradley Cooper's a little bit over the top with his uh, womanizing. Like, what is his? What in the losers? The, the very start, they're like, this guy's the comms guy. This guy's the sniper. This guy's the driver. And it's very – and the A-team, they do have those defined roles, but what is Bradley Cooper's role? Is his role to be sexy? Like, that that's 
I think his role is as the chameleon. So you know how there's always someone who is the charmer, the person who can yeah, okay. wear costumes. Now, he doesn't quite wear costumes and transform into different characters, but I think it's no to be of that spirit. He just makes out with journalists who slap him and then like it's just it's very having said that, I'll watch this with my current girlfriend. <laughs> and she quite enjoyed when when um, Bradley Cooper objectified women. So what the fuck do I know? <laughs> we'll go through like a full journey of your relationships. This is really psychotherapy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I've already mentioned I don't like that editing style where they intercut the planning of a heist with the performance. Do you think in this Patrick Wilson, uh, who is, spoilers, the CIA villain, he's called of doing a similar thing to Jason Patrick and that he's sort of dialing his performance right up as well. But not as, he doesn't do it as well though. No, no. Look, Patrick Wilson, again, great, great, really great actor. Um, But there's those little bits where you sort of can sort of catch almost uh, what feels like improv. Um, uh, You know, there's a bit where he's like eating some hot chips and uh, some actress who plays like some three I see tells some guy to shut up and he laughs and a chip almost falls out of his mouth. You know, same to Jason Patrick telling that, I guess Indian bloke that he's short feels a bit improv. I, I mean, I, I like it when it seems like the actors are having a little bit of fun yes. in their roles. Like that makes, for me, the, the movie feel a bit more a bit more fun. And it did feel a little bit like Patrick Wilson as the villain here was having a, having a good time. Yeah, he was. I do think there was another criticism I have. I think there's a, too many, a few too many strings to tie up. Um, get rid of one. <laughs> like... The, the the Jessica the Jessica Beale uh, storyline with Bradley Cooper and then there was the the weird black ops team kind of connection and I feel like there was one too many strings to kind of follow and yeah I just it just didn't it didn't get me like it did in the cinema um, you know there's a weird awkward scene where they're in the car and. Patrick Wilson's character Lynch is in the front and he wants them to shoot the black ops guy. But then the two guys in the back are bumbling with their guns trying to put the silencer on. That just seemed really unnecessary. Uh, I think they could have cut this movie down quite a bit and made it made it chug along nicely. Yeah, well, you know, I, I love run times and the A-team is one hour and like 50 minutes. Not necessary. Not necessary. No. 90 minutes, mate. 90 minutes could would have been perfect and they, they could have cut out some unnecessary stories, some some awkward scenes, and it would have been just the roller coaster that it wants to be. Yeah, totally. The Losers, one hour and 36 minutes or something. Perfect. You know, good choice. Okay. Gabe, what are your thoughts on the A-Team? Is it the best execution of a disavowed CIA team trying to redeem themselves? Um, No. It's interesting, I guess, you know, when movies are sort of so over the top and ridiculous, um, I guess like this one is, you know, we talked about the tank sequence where they sort of stop a tank from uh, crashing by firing its um, cannon to, you know, give it, I don't know, make it fucking float or some shit. Um, It's like fun, but there's never a sense in this movie that anything will actually go wrong. You're sort of just watching it to find out how it plays out. There's not really any real, you know, um, suspense or anything. I mean, like, even compared to a movie that's not quite like this but is um, another Joe Carnahan movie, you know, Smoking Aces, 
in Smoking Aces, you're never quite sure who's going to live and who's going to die and how it will all, you know, at any moment, any of the characters get killed, you know, and they sort of do that by shooting Ben Affleck early. Hey, Ben Affleck's dead. Um, whereas this is kind of like, yeah, maybe Gerald McRaney as General Morrison will get shot, but who really gives a shit? So it's sort of just a process of just letting the movie wash over you and if you like the action set pieces or you like the way Bradley Cooper looks without a shirt or you like Shalto Copley dialing it to 11 again sure you you'll have a you'll have a you'll have an okay time but there's never really a sense of danger or or true suspense yep or anything like that so i don't know it's kind of there's it's it's yeah like it, it, it is what it is and it does it fine and everyone seems to be, you know, saying their parts with just enough panache except, I suppose, Quentin Rampage Jackson who, fucking great UFC fighter, but, you know, the one character that in the original was like Mr Personality sort of unfortunately as B.A. Baracus isn't, isn't great. Um, yeah, he doesn't have the charisma, does he? Yeah, I mean, Mr T was a charisma machine, you know. Machine. So yeah, I mean, it's it's okay, and it and it does have those pretty a couple of those memorable set pieces, but um, you know, it is what it is. I don't know. What do you reckon, Ben? Well, Gabe, it sounds like you pitied this fool of a movie. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Very good. Pitied this fool of a movie. That's the expression that B. A. Brackus used to say before the A Team. I pitied a fool, and he brought it into the movie as well. And he actually, oh, I see. The uh, R- Rampage Jackson says the same thing. He has the tattoos on his hands. That's right. Well, there's a, the, when we meet Rampage Jackson, he has pity on one hand and he punches someone in the face, and then he has fool on the other hand and he punches him in the face with that hand as well. Well, where's the zip? Well, you don't want to know, Gabe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I agree with Gabe. There's one thing I was going to say. So the opening action sequence, which is which is absolutely ludicrous, maybe a little bit racist, but totally awesome. <laughs> That's a weird combination of words. <laughs> <laughs> it sets up the rules of the film straight away in that this is defying – it sets up the rules in that there's no rules. It's defying the laws of physics. Don't, don't worry about it. Just go along with it. And and it's I'm happy to do that, but Gabe touched on it there. The problem with that is then the, the stakes – the stakes aren't high enough because you you just you you believe these people are super, like nothing can go wrong with them, and also the losers the stakes you know saving the kids at the start that's fairly high stakes, um, and then the supersonic nukes that's you know super high stakes. But also you know Idris Elba Idris Elba betrays them in the losers. Yes, and I don't know if that happens in the in the comic book, but you know you don't um, necessarily see that. Coming, it's like, oh, that's a surprise. And I'm sure with yeah. the A team, they didn't want to move too far away from the source material. But, you know, like a movie, for instance, like Mission Impossible, which was a remake of a TV show, you know, they made Jim Phelps the villain in that, who was the hero, you know, one of the good guys of the TV show. So even though you maybe know it's all going to turn out fine for Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, for Ethan Hunt and he'll win, at least there's a big surprise where you go, oh, shit, they made a, 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 main character of the TV show, a bad guy, and it felt surprising. Yep. And the other thing with the A-Team is they're not trying to save the world or anything. They're not trying to stop a nuclear explosion. They're trying to retrieve some fucking currency plates. I don't give a fuck. It makes me feel like they're just as bad as the baddies, sort of, or they're, they're playing the same game. They're just It's just this 
kind of shady world that they're a part of. Whereas the losers right at the start saving the kids sets them up as being super good. Like these are, these are the guys. Yeah, I suppose if you're going to do the concept of a group of people that have been disavowed, right, and they have to try and clear their names, so they're going to act in a certain way where the villains for them in the movie will be the force of authority, the CIA, right, because that was once their home and now that's actually their place of they become the villains. So in that regard, you've got to be very clear as to how you define the characters against the others. And I agree with you that The Losers makes it very clear. Like, don't do anything at all wrong. So they're not anti-heroes in the sense that they actually are sort of walking in the moral grey area. They're trying to do good. And then they, through no fault of their own, are basically ejected from the comfort of the CIA and to find their way back, which might involve actually shooting people. But even when they shoot people, they kind of tend to shoot the, what, the private contractors? They sort of have these private contractors attacking them, which means it makes it very defensible that they shoot those other soldiers because they're just sort of, you know, money-hungry ex-government thugs. Is that the basic gist of how that works in a morality spectrum? Yeah, I guess so. Like the private contractors are, you know, like the the innocent people in the Matrix that Neo shoots. They're, they're non people sort of, I guess. <laughs> Non-people. Yeah, that that's a really good- They're stormtroopers. Yeah, that's a really good uh, analogy, I think. Like, they're, you don't feel too bad for them because they're sort of defined as being, yeah, nothing. They're not, they're not clearly good people, not clearly bad people, but definitely not goodies themselves. Um, so, look, I'll share a few thoughts. Um, I'm going to start randomly with cinematography, and I'll get to the characters and stuff, but- this film, I really enjoy. I can't put my finger on why I enjoy it so much, but I'll find my way to it because it's a film which I shouldn't enjoy on paper. The cinematography of this film is terrible. This film is a 2010 film where it has that terrible low contrast look that defines some Marvel movies where, I don't know, for those who aren't tech people listening to the podcast, there's a thing called Log where they shoot a film and it's designed to be shot in a very muddy kind of look so that when you turn up the colours and the darks and the lights in post-production, you add higher contrast, much like Instagram filter on your phone. So basically the colours can really pop. This film looks so flat to me. And I'm not sure if it's the colour correction or the digital cameras at the time, but it just looks really non-cinematic. Um, the CG is terrible and looks really cartoony, which I guess you'd say if you're being really generous and manages to match the cartoony violence because the scene where the tank, which is probably the most ludicrous scene in the entire film, as Gabe was saying, they're firing a tank that's hanging from a chopper, hanging from a parachute, and they're basically steering the tank to safety by landing in a lake opposed to smashing in the ground. And they're basically using the tank's, uh, tank's gun-like propulsion to push it sort of, you know, across the landscape. It looks incredibly fake. Like, it looks like the worst blue screen you've seen since a 1920s, sort of 40s film with rear projection. Um, it's a shame because it's a sort of fun scene. It's ludicrous and it is totally defying physics and logic in every way. But it's fun and it actually felt original. As an action set piece, it felt original. But- 
The other scenes in the film feel like they're trying to pay homage to the source material too much. Like how many times does uh, Hannibal say, I love it when a plan comes together, which is his iconic delivery from the TV show. Like Too many. Did you guys? Twice. Too many times. It must have been like four or five times. I felt like it happened too many times. And being based on the property as well, or so being based on a really famous property, like you guys were saying about stakes, there was never any sense that anyone was going to die. This film was being set up for sequels, up the wazoo, if it was successful, which ultimately wasn't. Whereas The Losers being a less famous property, I kind of feel that there was much more, op- there were many more opportunities for one of those characters to die, or in the case of Idris Elba, betray the others and become a villain, uh, because there was like less at stake. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yes. So for me, that sort of slowed the film down. Um, hey, Ben, just on something, because it's interesting you talked about the photography. Yeah. According to IMDb, 18 was shot on 35 mil, not- um, Really? Wow. Okay. Not digital. Yeah. Just, um, again, according to IMDb, it was just the aerials that were uh, Panavision Genesis. Otherwise, it was um, uh, Ari. So the one that- Ari 235s and 435s. So one that jumps out of my mind from memory is actually that tank scene as being the fake one. Uh, but that could look bad just because it's digital mashed with CG for the background stuff. But that's interesting. Um, maybe it's just the colour correction. It just felt I, – I remember I remember the film as being quite flat. Uh, yeah, I, and it's a strange choice because, I mean, I, again, I can't remember the TV series, but it's sort of – I would have thought the TV series would have been quite colourful. Uh, the TV series was set in the time with, you know, shitting on – Super 16 and okay. it's pretty dusty and a bit sort of muddy looking. So it's not re- it's not really. And a lot of scenes set in the desert and stuff. So uh, okay. that's kind of pretty bland. Or, you know, like dry deserts like in Texas or somewhere like that. So were they trying to match that, do you think? I don't think so. I think they just kept the characters and then jettisoned everything else because they set it overseas. But, Ben, also it's interesting you say, oh, this was a movie set up for a sequel. Because it obviously is, you know, it ends with basically the intro for the TV show. But part of me wonders, like, just start the fucking movie there. Like, I don't really care how they became the A-team. I would much prefer to see, I guess, a movie about them as the A-team. Like, if you have a problem, whatever they say, you know, get the A-team. Sort of more, that sort of wacky adventure probably lends itself to more what I'm after than the origin story. Like, yeah. uh, you know, the, the or It's that thing that... Superhero films suffer from quite a lot. Totally. Yeah. It's the, do we need to see yet again for the fourth time in cinema history, Batman's parents being killed? That's right. No, we don't. Mm. Do we need to see Spider-Man being bitten by a spider again? No, we don't. Like, we get it. Like, we watched The A-Team. We saw the first Spider-Man film. Just jump jump ahead. That's right. And I, I know this movie isn't a superhero movie, but, I mean, these characters are essentially superheroes. They have essential superpowers. I mean, Bradley Cooper is, like, irresistible, like, so irresistible that he can get anything from anyone. Charlotte Copley is insane. Oh, look, he's crazy. But he's also, like, an amazing pilot and stuff. Like, they can't fly and they don't wear tidy whities over, you know, um, uh, their, their um, uh, you know, what do you call those things? Stockings. But for all intents and purposes, they may as well be. So, yeah, just start... Just start later. Just start later. Yep. The film that I think suffers from that the most is Thomas Jane's Punisher. The first act goes for way too long. It's like, just fucking, I just want to see the dude in a skull shirt killing people. Come on. 
<laughs> Whereas the second Punisher film, which is tonally very different, ah, awesome. knowing that they already established the origins of the Punisher, yeah, War, War Zone. Zone. With Ray Stevenson. Yeah. yeah it's he great. was great. So violent, so stupid. That's a film that knows what it is it, because it's already set up how he becomes the Punisher despite it being a different actor and so on. It just jumps straight in. It's like yep, he's a vigilante with a costume. We get it. Yeah. So having just criticised the 18 now, I can't tell you why I enjoyed it more than the losers. But for me, I just found that tonally more consistent. I found the characters more engaging. You're just a fan of Bradley Cooper with no shirt. Yeah, aren't we all? Yeah, well, aren't we all? <laughs> now, you know what the reason is? I found it less annoying. It's as simple as that. <laughs> this is gonna this is gonna break your hearts, guys. But Jason Patrick ruined the losers so much for me that he made me enjoy the A team more. Fucked. Boom. <laughs> I, I, I reckon there's something in Jeffrey Dean Morgan in his Negan type um, role playing Max would have been better. And Jason Patrick could easily play Clay, the the leader of the the um, the goodies. So yeah, that would have been an interesting movie. Yeah, I agree. I also did, by the way, find the idea of a baddie and the losers wearing a suit the whole time to be a bit kind of cliched, like he's a banker. It's like, oh, come on. Like, it just felt like too OTT that he's private sector or he is making lots of money from his scams rather than just perhaps- What about his, what about his glove? I love the glove. I love the glove. Ah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. And there's a one scene where he's where he's, smoke, he's smoking opium with all the, the bikini-clad- Indian girls. Oh, yeah. And he says to the girl, stay stay wet in the pool. Yeah. <laughs> Bizarre. Oh, that's got to be up there for, for best lines. Where is yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, any final comments, guys, on the 18 before we move on? One thing I found that was, I think, and it was intentional, but one thing I found a little bit on my nose was how um, reverential they were to the army. Um, and I know that's pro- that's probably it, it sets up the whole thing with the general, but um, so you know in that opening sequence when Hannibal meets Ba Baracus and and carjacks him, and and then he shows the tattoo, and it goes from quite wacky to very solemn all of a sudden, and then back to wacky again, and I guess that's setting up the disappointment with the double cross of the general, but. It kind I felt like that stuck out as a little bit off and 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 out of kilter with the rest of the film, which is very wacky. Well, it's like you can't you can fetishize the military um, uh, heroically um, in these movies, but the CIA guys will always be you know villainous as if I guess those two prongs aren't tranches of a same same giant mechanism. Exactly. Like the yeah. Exactly. It, it's it, it did feel a little bit, and like oh he's he's a ranger, so all of a sudden he's he's my my best pal. I, I don't know if it works like that. Oh yeah, it's like g- good enough for me. It's like this guy clearly has deep psychological problems. <laughs> like exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Although he was awesome. He's my favorite thing about this film. Yeah, yeah, he's great. And you know, I like it when Shalto turns up in movies because you never really know what you're gonna get. <laughs> Um, that's one generous way of putting it. <laughs> You're right. You actually have no idea what you'll get and it's pretty wacky. Um, all right, let's do our combined review of both movies. Uh, let's start with notable similarities, coincidence or ripoff. Can you guys think of anything that these two films had in common besides that overall concept? 
Really? <laughs> no, they're pretty different, aren't they? Okay. Let's go to which film has aged better. I think The Losers aged better and I think that ages better because it it is naturally and uh, not to be too woke, but it is naturally inclusive, it, it, you know, very organically and the A team isn't as it's 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 got some blind spots and I think those blind spots date it more than The Losers does. How about you, Gabe? Um well, weirdly, I think something that harmed the losers was in 2010 at the time, its cast were kind of uh, B players. Like, uh, you know, uh, Chris Evans, he had done variously not great superhero movies, but he hadn't been Captain America's ass yet. Um, uh, Idris Elba hadn't like really exploded. So I think if you were looking at that movie and going in 2010, should I go see this movie at the cinema? Who the fuck are these people? Nah. Now, though, you watch it and go, shit, yeah, I'll watch a movie with Idris Elba and Chris Evans and... Zoe Saldana. Yeah, and the villain from Rambo Last Blood. Um, and uh, oh, Mindhunter. I love Mindhunter. Look, it's Holt McCallany. So I think in that way it's actually uh, risen in, in esteem, something that might have been an, a, a ding against it. In a way, in 2010, it was probably like a slightly larger budget DTV movie, you know? Um, yeah. Whereas now it's like, yeah, sweet. Um, so I think I, I, I agree with you, Sam. I think the losers retros- like retrospectively and now just feels like a, a better package. And and interestingly, Chris Evans and Zoe Saldana, who both in their MCU come together in the losers, which is technically a DC film. Oh shit! Look out! Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think the losers has aged better. Um, I think actually the character of Face is increasingly problematic as time goes by. I think actually the womanising character would be just as good as being a chameleon because that's always a key character role in most of those heist-type movies. So I guess you'd argue that's more problematic, um, but not dramatically. Let's jump to plot holes or missed opportunities. Is there anything else that the filmmakers could have done better with either film which sticks out as a big plot hole or just a missed opportunity? I mean, A-Team moves so fast that if someone asked me to describe the plot, I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> like, you know, you sort of follow it at the time, but you, like Sam said, they're looking for some MacGuffin that's just like money plates or something and then the general's alive and he's dead and then they're flying around in a tank and I don't know how I got here. Did I pass out? You know, so I couldn't tell you if there was a plot hole. Yeah, they, the missed opportunity in the A-Team is they put too much in. Yeah, and it t- turns out there's an extended version of this movie that's actually two hours and 15 minutes long. Oh, get fucked. Like, no. Are you serious? F- yeah. Ah. Like, wow, who's got the time for that? Thank Christ I didn't watch the director's cut. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, let's jump to a bit of trivia. Um, they should make director's cuts that are shorter. They should make, um, they should release the 90-minute cut of every movie. <laughs> sometimes sometimes I watch a movie and think to myself, God, I wish they could send me the rushes because I'd love to recut this. I think you could take like, oh, man. Oh, they should release the editor's cut. <laughs> yeah, the editor's cut. <laughs> the, the, I think there is one director's cut. I think it was Oliver Stone's Alexander. The director's cut was like 20 minutes shorter than the theatrical version. That's interesting. That's really weird. I wonder why. Maybe he cut one of the main um, famous actors like Angelina Jolie out and the studio want to have more of her or something like that. Something like that probably. 
Uh, yeah, okay. No, I mean, he did like four director's cuts of that movie, endlessly re-released. Did he? Oh, poor guy. But I think I think uh, Richard Donner's director's cut of Superman 2 might be shorter. Uh, Payback director's cut I think is shorter. Uh, Bad Santa director's cut I think might be shorter. I'm all for it. Uh, the final cut of Blade Runner I think might be shorter. Yeah, okay. What about Apocalypse Now? What are, what are the various versions of Apocalypse Now? How does that play out? No, they all get longer because they keep banging that fucking terrible sequence where they go to the French plantation in, which is fine as a DVD extra, but, God, it ruins the pace of that movie. <laughs> I like the way Tarantino does it with um, with DVDs back in the day. He used to... So the Pulp Fiction extra scenes, they weren't cut into the film. He just put them on the... He put them as an extra. So you watch these scenes that didn't quite make it. Yeah, totally. But, you know, people don't have DVD. People don't have DVDs. So where am I going to... Where am I going to see that? I think that's a shame. Oh, totally. Totally. I think it's a huge shame that if you're a film student right now, like you're at TAFE or uni studying, like, you know, how to be a filmmaker, you just can't learn from director's commentaries and behind-the-scenes making of as you used to be able to, whereas there was that glorious time with Laserdisc and DVD where that was just the reason you actually bought the hard disc medium. You bought it to actually listen to the director's commentary to watch the behind-the-scenes. Like... I learned more about filmmaking watching the Matrix DVD and films like the yeah, the Heat DVD set, the double set, than I did actually when I was studying it. And nowadays, you watch all those films from the comfort of your own room really easily on a streaming service, but you can't get those deleted scenes or the behind the scenes in the same way. I suppose unless they're being uploaded as regularly to YouTube. But mm. I think what happened was once Ben Affleck started criticising the making of Armageddon, <laughs> they started kind of releasing behind-the-scenes vignettes and so on that were much more promotional, whereas in the early days, the actors would speak much more candidly on the audio commentaries. The behind-the-scenes were a bit more objective and not as much about the promotion of the film but just like a genuine geeky insight, which means they often criticised the film or maybe didn't show the actors or filmmakers in the best light, but at least it was sort of more realistic. It was like a podcast. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Yeah. And funnily enough, apparently a lot of directors now are releasing podcasts of their audio commentaries. Yes. Like Ryan Johnson did with The Last Jedi where- And you can sync them up. Yeah, which is cool. Mm, that is cool. All right, let's jump to casting woulda, shoulda, couldas. So let's start with the losers. Apparently Tim Story, he of the Fantastic Four films in the early 2000s, was initially announced as the director of The Losers in 2007 and he thought it would be a good chance to move from one comic property to a more naturalistic comic property. And he was on for quite a while until they actually brought on um, Sylvain White instead. And the other thing is that Jeremy Renner was considered for the lead role, which I guess would have been uh, Dean's role, but dropped out due to, quote, scheduling conflicts. Oh, I'm quite happy with that. Yeah, Gabe, better film with Tim Story and Jeremy Renner or not? Uh, I don't know. With Tim Story, it'd be a different movie. Uh, Jeremy Renner is the lead. Yeah, I could I could see that, I guess. I mean, Jeffrey Dean Morgan looks great in a pair of aviators and an untucked uh, white uh, business shirt with a suit jacket. So I don't know how you could top that. I feel like uh, Jeremy Renner would be better as uh, Chris Evans' character than, than yeah. Jeffrey Dean Morgan's character. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, over to the A-team. Apparently, John Singleton was originally assigned to direct, but in 2008, he pulled out. But get this, when he was going to direct, 
The original cast included Mel Gibson as Hannibal, oh. Christian Bale as Face, Jim Carrey as Murdoch, and either Dwayne The Rock Johnson as B.A. or Ice Cube. Oh, I want to see that film. I want to see that movie. That is the movie I want to see. Oh, talk about missed opportunities. Jeez. Yeah, that's great. I really like that cast. Gabe? Uh, yeah, I mean, in short, I'd love to see that. I know Mel Gibson's a little, uh, little spicy these days because of his various <laughs> various racisms. But um, yes, but this was 2010, so it's fine. That's right. Different different time then. But fuck, Ice Cube in anything, awesome. Yes, <laughs> Desolation Williams. Ice Cube would have been a better BA Baracus, I think. And I love, I do, I do love Rampage Jackson. But I, 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 I yeah, someone with a little bit more chops would have been better. How about The Rock, who was tagged as BA? I don't know about The Rock. I don't think he'd look good with a mohawk. No. He's too big. He's a little bit too big. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Okay. Let's jump to Spot the Aussie. Now, I can't think of any in either film. Did you guys spot any Aussies flexing? Uh, well, no. Shalto's Sh- Sh- almost an Aussie. Shalto's South African, so... <laughs> That counts. <laughs> that doesn't count. Oh, I thought he was a New Zealander. Why did I think he was a New Zealander? It's a Peter Jackson link? Yeah, maybe. Fuck, he's a South African, isn't he? Ah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. But he's, he's South yeah. African though, isn't he? Yeah, he must be because of that that Bugs movie, no, Prawns, whatever it was. District 9. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fuck. I always thought he was a New Zealander. That's weird. He's in Chappie too. Ugh. So he's of the same uh, background as the director of um, Chappie and so on. Mm. All right, let's jump to box office. So which movie was the box office champ? Let's start with The Losers. Have a guess, Sam. I feel like The Losers made less money than The A-Team, but I feel like it was also um, the, it cost a lot less money. So I reckon The Losers on balance might have made a bigger percentage of its budget. Okay, Gabe, over to you. I think The Losers was a big flop despite it having a smaller budget. All right. We've got two flops here, boys. <laughs> and I'm talking about the films. <laughs> uh, the Losers. Budget, 25 million US. Oh, geez. That's, wow. Yeah. Which I've got to say, as you were saying before, all the money's on screen. I think it's a- That's incredible. Good value for money. Oh, it's awesome. Like, really. I mean, you would never get this movie for 25 million bucks or whatever it would be adjusted for inflation. That like, you know- 31 million bucks or whatever these days. It's Certainly not with this cast. No, but like even the, the size of the set pieces and stuff for the amount of money, it's, you know, it's pretty impressive. Mm. Well, by contrast, the A team cost $110 million. Yeah. So we're looking at uh, well four and a half times the budget. And I don't think you see four and a half times the quality of set pieces in the A team. Not at all. So the losers, made for 25 does a pretty lousy 23 and a half domestically plus oh. almost six internationally a worldwide total of 29 and a half million dollars so it flopped and unless it made a bucket load on v on demand or dvd which i don't think it has quite that cult cachet unfortunately it was considered a flop which is probably why they haven't made a sequel well, they'll make all their money back now with all your listeners renting it on video on demand. True, true. They'll probably make an extra $75 million conservatively. Yeah. <laughs> Just make sure you get your cut, Ben. <laughs> That's right. Daddy gets paid. <laughs> okay, A-Team. 
budget one hundred ten million. Did only seventy seven domestically plus a hundred internationally for a worldwide total yeah. of one hundred and seventy seven. So, again, unfortunately, in ratio to the budget, that was a flop as well, and hence no sequel. Any surprises there, guys? Did the losers, you know, cut the lunch of the A team, or were both films destined to fail? Oh, they were probably destined to fail um, via word of mouth or whatever it was. But I think, I think, um, you know, I think too often we look at box office as as, a, as an indicator of of success, and I think just creating the losers for twenty. Three million dollars or whatever it was is a success in of in of itself. Oh, well, that's very sweet of you. <laughs> yeah, clearly not a financier or executive producer. <laughs> I've worked on a lot of films that have bombed, Gabe. <laughs> I mean, nice. No, uh, I mean, the A Team uh, came out. I think the same week as the Karate Kid, and the Karate Kid smashed it. Ugh. Well, and uh, if you'd like to know what beat the losers, I believe that was the uh, uh, everything that got released that week. Uh, date night. How to Train Your Dragon, and The Backup Plan. So it was beat by The Backup Plan, which, to be honest, I'm not even sure what that is. No. I think it's one of those romantic comedies with um, someone like Jason Segal or someone like that, or maybe Gerard Butler. But either way. Why do you say Jason Segal like he's related to Steven Segal? How do you pronounce it? Segal? Segal. I think it's Jason Segal, isn't it? Yeah. Look, I'm not- Gabe, help me out. Uh, Jason Jason (laughs) Segal. Yeah, I, I apologise. I'm not actually on his Facebook fan page like yourself every single day, Sam. What if he is related to Steven Seagal? That'd be cool. <laughs> they should do a team-up movie. It'd be great. Like twins. Yeah. Which one's the Which one's the genetic um, sludge twin? <laughs> so I think Steven. Hey, by the way, why hasn't someone done a sequel to, the tw- to twins, either a legitimate sequel or a rip-off, and just call it, Twins 2 or something similar. They, they have, dude. It's been in development for ages. At one point- With who? Eddie Murphy was going to be in as the third twin. No, I know there's a third one, but I'm actually saying scrap the original cast and just have, you know, two radically different actors like Steven Seagal and Steven Seagal in the same movie together. Or The Rock and Kevin Hart. Yeah. And, and so basically rather make it a buddy cop film, it's just another version of Twins. That seems like something that- Someone should have done. Maybe one of those guys from those straight-to-DVD mockbusters. <laughs> sure, sure. I think there's room to do a Twins reboot. Maybe do a, do a gender swap version. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, okay. Maybe sort of mix up, mix up the, uh, the, the ages, the races as well to make it much more extreme as well in terms of them being radically different. Mm. Uh, all right, let's jump to... The Rotten Tomatoes scores. So, boys, have a guess. Which one won over the critics? <laughs> if you can say won over. Oh, I don't think either won over the critics. I think probably the A-team got panned a little bit harder. Gabe? Yeah, I'd, 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 I'd guess that. That seems like a fair guess. Well, we're making podcast history, gentlemen, because today we have our first draw. Both scores are 48% for both movies, 48%. Oh. Actually, I've got to say, not as bad as I expected. No, that's pretty good. Yeah. Which one do you think won over the fans, the audience? Uh, I reckon 
the fans liked the A team more just for nostalgic reasons and and its recognizability. Gabe? Sure, seems fair. Yep. I that that's a good guess. Well, guys, remind me to take you to the casino sometime because you've got a certain, you know, sense of these things. Because the A team scored sixty six percent, beating the losers, which only had fifty four percent. Oh, that's 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 both generous to the A team and a little bit harsh on the losers, if you ask me. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. All right, it's come to that time, boys. It's come to the time for the awards. Are you pumped? Are you excited? Are you ready? I'm pumped. Drum roll, please, Sam. Yeah. All right. Gabe, do some push-ups for energy. Mate, I've been doing push-ups this whole time. <laughs> With one arm. <laughs> With no arms. Uh, all right. Now, I've, I've actually... Get- my most anticipated point in the podcast, and I've been dying to say this for the last hour or so, but I'm saving it for right now, best title. And I'm going to say this, The Losers is a great example of a terrible title which just sets you up for failure and just writes that line that a film critic or a comic critic is going to write when they look at your story. Yep. I get why it's called it in theory, but there's got to be one of those rule 101s of thinking up a title for your property, for your book, for your movie, for your comic, and don't use a word that makes your film sound like a loser, such as The Losers. Yeah. Mm, fair. The Losers. Yeah, they should have called it The Misfits or The Outsiders or The- Yeah, Misfits. Great idea. The Renegades, The Rogue yeah. Operators. The Mad Cunts. The Mad Cunts. Yeah, like it. The Young Guns. <laughs> Fuck, I love that movie. Oh, nice. It's awesome. <laughs> the Road Guns. Uh, so I think we have to agree that just by default the A-Team wins, right? Hey, is there, is there a twin movie for Young Guns? Because I would jump on that podcast 100%. Fucking oath. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's, put, let's park that one to the sideline and uh, do some research. <laughs> <laughs> uh, best poster. Now, for the podcast, listeners who can't see, depending on the artwork I put up, you'll see the two versions a group of the losers gathered around, staring down towards the camera like it's on the ground looking upwards. There's actually two versions. There's the ComCon variant, which is basically them but stylized in their comic book uh, personas. And another one, which I think was more the common theatrical release, which has them just looking like themselves in real life. But the idea being that this is a Randy, Matt, Randy? A random group of characters all together who are bonded in a circle. And the A-team is kind of a pretty boring poster, I've got to say. Uh, Gabe, do you want to describe that? Uh, it's four men standing in a arid shrubland. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't like the tagline either. There is no plan B. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like they, they, they're winging it the whole time. Like, what do you mean there is no plan B? It means when, when Bradley Cooper seduces those women, they are definitely pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the sequel, Bradley Cooper dodging alimony payments. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, all right, so I guess we'll give it to by default the losers. Yeah, well, the losers. I actually quite like the poster for the losers. I think that's that's quite stylish. I like the color palette. Yeah, I like uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan's crotch there. <laughs> All right, let's jump to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, uh, named after Billy Bob and Ben Affleck to jump from indie films into Hollywood when they starred in Armageddon. So of these two movies, gents, who got their big break in either one? 
Let's start with the losers. Who got that big break? What was so? What was Zoe Saldana in before this? Was she anything? Oh, uh, this tiny little film called Avatar, I think. Oh, was that before this? <laughs> yeah, that was 2009. Oh, well, don't worry about that. I had the director, Sylvain White, actually, because I think this was his first big, you know, Hollywood break. So he wasn't in the cast, but he was a bit of a no one before that compared to where he is now. So he's my nominee. What do you mean? He made Stomp the Yard, dude. Yeah, it wasn't a big film. Mm. What about um, Idris? Oh, well, he was also in The Wire before, so. Oh, The Wire's well before that. Sorry. I'm just looking. Yeah. Okay. Well, unless you can beat my Sylvain, who who are your A-team nominees? Well, it's not from indie film, but I guess guess Quentin Rampage Jackson, this was his first, like, you know, uh, a, a hero of the UFC getting a big role in a big movie. Yeah, I pay that. I agree. Yep. I put I put him as a nominee. In fact, I'd actually elevate him to winner. Right. Give it to him. Done. Interestingly, he had previously appeared in Midnight Meat Train, also starring Bradley Cooper. Wow. Interesting. And actually, one of your favourite films, as I recall. It is. People tell me to just shut up and stop talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's jump to the Before They Were Famous Award, or Blink and You'll Miss Them. Let's start with the losers. So. Any kind of like people that appeared in a tiny role that popped up later on? I don't really think there were, were there? No. There's one guy that I recognised who, no, I don't think so. It's actually quite a small cast. Most people are playing random guards or black ops characters, aren't they? Yeah, it's pretty, and I think that, you know, that speaks to the budget. It's quite efficient with its casting and, yeah. Did you say efficient, Sam? I've got a feeling that you think that this film is potentially efficient. Is that right? That's my that's my tagline. That would be my my review on IMDb. Would be efficient. There is only an efficient plan. Yeah, Gabe, how about you? Uh, this is a dumb question. Which one does John Hamm turn up in? Oh, he he's ah well, he's my next one. He's actually in the A team. Oh, it's the A team. He's the yeah. He's the CIA guy. There. He's my nominee for this this award. He's set up as their future handler, I guess, at the end. Ah, of course. Yeah, he thought after doing The Town in 2010 in this film, he was kicking on to like sequels up the wazoo. I feel like, and I might be wrong, but John Hamm's probably appeared in this kind of cameo role in a whole bunch of movies that never went on to be franchises. Like, yeah. And it, it, I might be way off. Like, like, this might be the only one, but I feel like maybe not. I do feel that it was that time in 2010, around the 2010s, where he was so hot right now with Mad Men. And he really wanted to make it across to big movies. And he had that classic kind of 40s movie look and starred in a 1960s TV show. And they were just trying to get him across. And he didn't quite crack it, did he? No. What do you guys think of films that that really obviously set up for the sequel optimistically? Like like both these movies do, you know? The Max gets away in The Losers and this one you know, it basically has the opening scene for the next movie at the end of this film. Yeah, God damn it! when are they going to make the Green Lantern 2? <laughs> well, yeah, but the other, a big example for me is, uh, what was it called? What's that anime that um, Rodriguez did recently? Oh, Battle Angel Alita. Battle Angel Alita. Ma- oh, yeah, yeah. With the- Massively sets up for a sequel with uh, Edward Norton at the end, but unfortunately I don't think we're going to see it. That's right. That's right. We'll, just, we'll be waiting on that like we're waiting on the Super Mario Brothers sequel from 1993, <laughs> you know. Samantha Mathis kicks down the door. Come on, make it happen. 
It's only 27 years. They're all still good. Bob Hoskins is dead, but just get some other mustachioed Englishman to play the classic Italian plumber. (laughs) (laughs) My My take is this. If the film's really good then it's fine. Mm. But if the film's not good, it just seems desperate. Yeah. So it depends on the film. I'm trying to think of a film that does it. I I suppose you'd say the first Iron Man does something kind of similar where at the end he basically reveals that he's Iron Man. And so it's not revealing a new character but basically saying, right, in every other superhero film, the character's superhero identity is always closeted. Like no one knows that that billionaire is also – dressed in lycra or a metal suit. And that film kind of goes, you know what? We're going to just throw chaos into the universe and the last line of the film will be him revealing who he is, which will then set up how will the sequel handle that. Yeah, it's great. That works, but also the film's good. And Ben, Ben, I've got good news. They did make sequels to Iron Man. Oh, they did. You can scratch that itch, Matt. I'm so relieved about that. Wow, okay. The Matrix also massively sets up for the sequels as well. It's like this is just the beginning fly off into the air and Rage Against the Machine plays. See, it's funny. When I saw The Matrix the first time and that film played at like a midnight screening regularly at the cinema I worked in, so I saw that ending where he hangs up from the phone call in the phone booth and takes off into the sky and flies like Superman, I actually never thought a sequel was going to come. And I just sort of thought that was – I didn't see that being – sequel fodder or a tease. Mm. In fact, I didn't even really kind of realise he was flying. So that was my interpretation at the time. But looking back on it now, yeah, it's like, right, his skills have progressed to the next level. So he has to now battle people in the sequel at a higher level. But you may, it makes sense to me in retrospect, but I myself didn't interpret that at the time. Well, that's, I guess, the best way to do it. Yeah, so basically the film is the best The best way to set up for a sequel is do it with a, with a, uh, a satisfying ending that feels like, yep, that's it, but it could go on. Yeah. Well, apparently in Blade, which we recently reviewed for the podcast, I found a deleted scene on YouTube where basically there's an extra scene tacked on at the end where he sees Morbius, which, correct me if I'm wrong, not being a comic geek, which I say in a loving way, but I think that's the one that Jared Leto's playing, which is basically rather than being a Batman, he's a man-bat essentially. Is that right? Where he's basically a Frankenstein mutant man-bat. Is that right? I I say that in a loving way. (laughs) Some of my best friends are comic fans. (laughs) And some of my best friends are man-bat Frankensteins. (laughs) I'm not not that familiar with the vampires in the comic world, to be honest. Just just make the the, the long-promised sequel to Big Trouble in Little China. So does that actually end on a cliffhanger, the first film? Like it teases a sequel? Oh, sort of. Like, yeah, Kurt Russell is in... um, he hitches a ride from like an interdimensional uh, monster. Wow. Really? Yeah. Great. Great stuff. <laughs> okay. So I think we'll have to agree that John Hamm takes it home. What do you think? Yep. I have no recollection of what this award was. <laughs> this was the blink and you'll miss them. So John Hamm, you may not get the sequel, but you do get this very illustrious award. Sam will have it shipped to you very soon. What a sweet day that was for him, that one day on set where he ate the craft service and used the portaloos. <laughs> All right, let's jump to the uh, Tommy Lee Jones Show Stiller Award, named after the iconic performance by Mr. Jones in The Fugitive. Jason Patrick wins. Wow. 
<laughs> so you think Jason Patrick stole the show? I don't even want to hear. I don't want to hear arguments. Despite being in a small or poorly written role, it's not small. So he just steals the show. Sam, uh, Sam, you better vote for Jason Patrick. I don't want to fucking come over there and. <laughs> Jason Patrick. I'm trying to. I'm trying to have a look. Uh, stealing the show. Well, it's either Jason Patrick or Chris Evans in The Losers, or um, Shalto Copley in in the A Team. All right, I Jessica Biel in the A Team. She's working with not much at all, but she does a. Yeah, she's working with with lazy script. I feel like again, this is the one of the blind spots. I feel like her. She was a little bit too shrew like in her. You know. In, 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 in her dialogue and this, I just feel like it was a little bit – and I hate to say lazy writing because I'm not a writer and I've, I know it's very hard. Um, but, yeah, she didn't have a lot to work with at all and she pulls it off by the end, but, geez. Okay, well, do we, uh, do we have any nominees or, all, <laughs> or not? Sucked in, Ben. It's Jason, Jason Patrick. Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> Go. All right, Jason Patrick. Well, you'll be glad to know, guys, that – the writers behind The Losers are Peter Berg and James Vanderbilt, which is a pretty amazing combination of writers for a film that was unfortunately pretty disposable. So Vanderbilt has done films like Zodiac, uh, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, White House Down, The Rundown, Basic, Scream 5. Like He's also written a lot of scripts as a script doctor. And Peter Berg's, you know, the guy behind... Friday Night Lights and so on. Uh, so pretty big swinging writers for a small film, but that's because I think Berg was going to direct it originally very early on and then eventually got to Sylvain White with a bit of a detour through Tim's story. So, yeah, I'm not sure if you'd compliment those guys for the writing of uh, Jason Patrick's character or not. Team effort. It was a whole bunch. It was like uh, stars aligning. <laughs> All right. Let's jump on to the Mickey Rourke Award, named in honour of the troubled actor who squandered his chance. Who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in either of these films? Let's start with The Losers. Um, I think they all, they've all they they've all grabbed their opportunities with both hands. Maybe what's Holton McCallany been in since then? Uh, Mindhunter. Oh, okay. All right. Columbus Short? Yeah. I don't think he's really kicked on to do much, has he? Okay, so he's a possible nominee. Uh, how about Gabe, the A-team? Any nominees there? Well, I mean, I guess this was Rampage Jackson's biggest biggest movie um, and then he just went on to just do a whole bunch of DTV stuff. Yeah, okay, I'll take that. I'll play him for both awards, both the, uh, the Big Break Award and this one as well. He got his break and didn't make the most of it. What do you think? <laughs> Fair enough. All right, done. Jackson, I don't want to meet you in person as I fear violence, but the award is waiting for you. The, dir- the director of um, The Losers, I mean, he's kicked on to do a lot of TV, but he hasn't done, you know, m- many films after this. He's only done one more since, which was Slender Man, which um, I don't want to, you know, rag on movies too hard, but um, it's fucking shit. Yeah. So maybe he didn't make the most of it. Uh, yeah, I was like Gabe's comment that he doesn't want to rag on movies too much on a podcast review show, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you want to like, like you want to keep it kind of like civilized, intellectual. Yeah, yeah. You want to light a candle rather than curse the darkness. That's right. Oh, nice. That's right. Wow. Very well said, Sam. Except for when it comes to Slender Man. <laughs> I have to. Um, I have to give credit to. Uh, 
Nate from This Week in League podcast for that line. Oh, well played. Well regurgitated. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so between Sylvain White, director, and Jackson, who do we hand the Mickey Rourke Award to? Because it's very much cherished. So, give it to them both. Who knows? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> let's, give it to, let's give it to the director. All right, Sylvain White. Yeah. Uh, let's move on because Gabe's very excited. The winner, winner, Chicken Dinner Award. Who came out on top in each of these films and was it their career high? So starting with the losers. Jason Patrick. Yeah, Jason Patrick. I'd say Sylvain White as in like, you know, like I think he did a lot, a lot with a little. So that's good for him. I agree. Having previously sledged him for Slender Man, I think particularly for the budget, this is actually a really well put together and executed Film. Would you say it's efficient, Gabe? I would, I would describe it as efficient. Um, <laughs> would you nominate as well Jason Patrick for this? Uh, I mean, I'm nominating him for everything. Oh, wow. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Um, yeah, look, I think, I think, I don't think there's a lot of winners, <laughs> to be honest, from these films. <laughs> All right. So let's put Sylvain White up against the A-Team. Well, because because the cast of The Losers have all gone on to do much bigger and better things generally, um, and the cast of The A-Team was sort of slumming it, except for Quentin Jackson. Yeah. So maybe he's the winner again. Or Joe Carnahan. I mean, it's clearly not his, you know, best film by a long stretch. Uh, look- I'm struggling for nominees here. Yeah. Should we just give it to Sylvain White from The Losers? Sure. Done. All right. Gabe, you can lead off with this one. I know you like your quotes. Best Dialogue Award. Who's your favourite or what's your favourite quote from The Losers? Um, oh, my God, I'm the Black MacGyver. Black Guyver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Oh, that's terrible. I like it. Uh, Sam? I don't have any from The Losers, but I've got two from the A-Team. All right. What do you got? So, uh, so there's a part where um, the the bad ECA guy says to his his offsider, he says, "I want you to follow. I want you to follow Jessica Biel's character. I want you to put you know taps on her phones and stuff." And his henchman says, "You realise she's DOD?" And uh, Patrick Wilson says, "I don't care if she's GOD. Do it." <laughs> uh, I love spelling jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, All right. Hold on. Just, 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 just swinging back to the losers because um, I've talked up uh, Jason Patrick big. I do like that bit where he says, um, "It's like giving a handgun to a six-year-old Wade. You don't know how it's going to end, but you're pretty sure it's going to make the papers." Ah. Uh, <laughs> That's a good line. Good line. And I like the way that he throws he throws away his lines really well. Like, like you say, he's really hamming it up, and he is. But he also has this great way of just tossing them off. Yeah, deadpan. Yeah. Yeah, there's another line from the A team um, at the startish when Liam Neeson's character Hannibal is is confronting the the black ops guys, uh, and he says, "Look at you clowns! You're not soldiers. You're assassins in polo shirts." Oh yeah, <laughs> that's quite good. <laughs> All right, do we give it to the losers or the A team? I think I think that last line from Gabe of the losers was was pretty good. All right, excellent. Well, Peter Berg and James Vanderbilt, you worked hard on that script and there's an award coming your way. Let's move on to the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. 
Uh, oh, Jesus Christ, I can't do this. Okay, the losers. <laughs> all right, so for me, it's clearly Jason Patrick. Maybe we'll all agree on this, but for you, it's good and for me, it's bad. Jason Patrick. Yeah, Jason Patrick. Look, we haven't given him an award. Oh, Chris Evans deserves an honorary mention for chewing the scenery. Oh, yeah, okay. He's that stupid fucking beard. God, I hate that beard. <laughs> but that scene that scene where, um, where he's in the elevator lobby and he pretends to be telekinetic and shoots the guards, but it's actually Cougar from across the way. He's pretty hammy in that. And actually, I actually love that shot. I know you hate it when the camera goes through the bullet hole and then to the other side and then and we see Cougar and he tips his hat. I, I love that shot, even though you hate when cameras go where they can't go. I'd call that a director chewing the scenery award where it's just so over the top, a bit like the scenes in Wanted, kind of similar. Exactly like Wanted, yeah. Was that before this or after this? Wanted was before, I think, in like 2008. Ah. They took it to the nth degree, though. This was just kind of one little flourish in the film, whereas whereas Wanted does it constantly. It's a rule of threes to me. In Wanted, they lean into it the whole way and it works really well. When it's a flourish like that, to me, it stands out. I don't know if Wanted works really well. Ah, okay. Controversial take. <laughs> we'll get back to that. Uh, let's go to the A-team. Any nominees? I've got... Uh, Shalto Copley and Patrick Wilson. I'd, I'd throw in Yul Vasquez, who plays uh, General Javier Tuco at the beginning. He's certainly dialing it to 11. Oh, yeah, he's dialing it to 11. Ah, uh, yes. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of Yul. Whenever he turns up in something, I point at the screen and I say, it's Yul. Even Liam Neeson chews the scenery a little bit in the A-team, if we're honest. Oh, totally, totally. Look, I feel, boys, we can, like, flirt with this, dance around it. Pretend there are other nominees. Pretend our hearts that we're being fair, we're being just, we're being objective. But really, there can only be one Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award winner, and that surely has to be. Drum roll, please, Sam. Jason Patrick. Yes, yes. And, yeah, Jason Patrick is the return of the king of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Give it, give it all the awards. All right. Uh, bring it home now. We've got the... Taking a Paycheck Award speaks for itself. So I had for the losers, Idris Elba, and for the A-team, I had the cameos by Dwight Schultz, who plays Murdoch, and Dirk Benedict, who plays Face, who basically also later regretted the cameo, which I'm not sure why, because it's not like it slurred his name in any way, but they're my nominees. Over to you guys. What? Well, what about Jason Patrick? Oh, yeah, I suppose so. I also think, though, in 2010... Isn't he happy to be hired in a theatrically released movie? True. What the fuck? You take that back. Jason Patrick does exactly what he wants to do. <laughs> <laughs> On his own terms. That's right. <laughs> and, and Jason Patrick wants to get paid. Exactly. <laughs> you know? All right. Well, I've got my uh, 18 cameos as my nominee. It's on you guys. Surely Liam Neeson's taking a, taking a paycheck here a little bit. Oh, Yes, it was so obvious it was right in front of us. It's got to be Liam Neeson. It's got to be Liam Neeson, right? Like, surely he's not doing this for the acting challenge. No. Gabe, what do you think? Oh, yeah, Liam Neeson, he's he's king of taking the paycheck, it, apart from the the very occasional little right. role where you think hey, he's a guy who gives a damn. Yeah, this is the start of the uh, 2008 onwards taking era where Liam's just, like, taking care of his beach houses, private school for the grandkids, looking after the future. Okay, the Stephen Toblowski Award, a.k.a. Hates That Guy, named after the actor who appeared in Groundhog Day as Ned Ryson. So, Sam, 
who triggered hey it's that guy when he or she appeared on screen starting with the losers um actually this can fold over with the what did you the memento award idris elba i'd forgotten i haven't seen his movie for a long time i've forgotten he was in it and i was like hey it's idris elba i know that doesn't quite fit this award but yeah i i, I forgot about him I think he's too famous to count for that one myself. Okay, fair enough. But, hey, you know, we all interpret the awards in different ways. Uh, Gabe? What about Holt McCallany? Yep, I had him as well. He of Mindhunter, Fight Club, Alien 3. He's my nominee. He's one of those guys, totally, where if you watch movies from, like, the 90s uh, onwards, he'll just turn up in, like, one scene somewhere, you know, uh, he's in, and you totally figure he's in the bit, like, Peacemaker, Three Kings, uh, uh, Men of Honor, Fight Club, like you said, um, and you're just like, oh, there he is. Ah. So it was, it was really nice when uh, Fincher put him in Mindhunter and he got that big role. I was like, go Holt. Have you guys seen uh, Signs? No, not Signs. Yeah, Signs. It's a little tiny indie film by um, M. Night Shyamalan. No, The Sixth Sense, that one. Have you guys seen that film? What? The Sixth Sense. Have we seen <laughs> yes. The Sixth Sense? No, I haven't seen it. Please don't tell me the ending. <laughs> Is, is Holt's not in that, is he? No, but you know how there's this weird thing in popular culture where everyone thinks there's a Shazam movie that stars, uh, who's that? Oh, Sinbad. American the- Sinbad, right? And everyone thinks that Sinbad appeared in a film called Shazam. You've heard of this thing, right? Yeah, the Mandala effect. Yeah. I have that in my life in the film The Sixth Sense where I always think that Holt McCallany was that guy wearing that kind of, uh, was it the orange or blue kind of like cleaning suit who goes and r- breaks into the house at the end of the film and unfortunately, you know, assaults and terrorizes and kills that family. And he has that huge fight with Bruce Willis. I always in my head think that guy is played by Holt. It's an entirely different actor, but I actually, in my brain, the Holt filmography goes, uh, Alien 3, something else, The Sixth Sense, Mindhunter. Like I always associated my mind, that's him. It's not. Different actor. Anyway, little insight to a bit of a Benny Phelps psychology. There, there you go. Uh, what about the A-Team? What's the award again? I forget. Uh, oh, Ned Ryerson Award. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Henry Cerny. Yes, Kittredge from Mission Impossible. <laughs> yeah. You've never seen me very upset. Is that him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, classic. He's actually returning in the Mission Impossible sequels too. Oh, Henry Cerny. 98 credits on IMDb. And Yule Vasquez has to be kind of as well. Yule. Yep. I also had Gerald McRaney who plays General Morrison in the A-Team. Yeah, General. Uh, so who are we handing to? Holt, Henry, Gerald? I-, I think Holt. Holt? Yeah. Holt gets it. All right. Moving on to the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough, named after the great Delroy Lindo, who's back, baby, in The Five Bloods on Netflix. Uh, good to see him back on the, uh, well, not quite the big screen, but back in a, you know, pretty big big movie, talked about flick. Let's start with The Losers. I had Holt again, and in the A-team I had, again, Henry Zerny. Over to you. I'd like to see Charlotte Cop- Copley in more things. Oh, wow. Um, would you, though? Sometimes it's like a devil's bargain. <laughs> Sometimes you're like, fuck yeah, <laughs> this is great, whatever he's doing here. And then other times you're like, what the fuck is he doing here? 
Although small doses. Yeah, well, although it's like you know, in Old Boy, for instance, he makes some big choices in the Old Boy remake, and it's not a particularly great movie. But you're glad he did. Mm. Yeah, Shalato's a box of uh, Tim Tams for me. Like, you don't want to have the whole box. You regret it afterwards. You speak for yourself, Ben. <laughs> you're just a teenage girl with a bucket of ice cream at home. <laughs> you know. I mean, Elysium's not a great movie, but he's, he's pretty fun in that. The other one I had was Oscar Giannata from The Losers. Oscar Giannata. Oh, yeah, he's great. He was, he was good. He was good. He should be in more stuff. Well, I think he is in quite a lot of stuff. Just uh, that stuff might be made in... Um, South America. Oh, look, he's in, he's in Rambo Last Blood. Yeah, he's great in that. He gets gets killed off like halfway through and the movie really lacks sort of, I mean, he's playing a kind of very stock, you could probably argue racist sort of um, uh, villain. Caricature. Yeah, yeah. But um, he's still really great in it. Just a coked up um, cartel boss. Well, guys, I'll hand it over to you to have the honours of handing out the Delroy Lindo Award. Sam, you give it away, mate. Uh, well, uh, let me just have a quick look. I think it's got to be Jason Patrick. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, Very good. That's the last time I assign you that responsibility. <laughs> you're like, you're, you're, You've chosen wisely, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> this is like that scene where they announced the, uh, the winner was um, um, not Moonlight but the other film <laughs> at the Oscars, like... <laughs> was it the dancey one? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. La La Land. Yeah. Now, this is like that scene uh, where Warren Beatty sort of like, you know, throws, who's an actor under the bus at the Oscars where they announced the wrong winner, where they announced um, La La Land instead of Moonlight. And he looks at the award. Who? Faye, Faye Dunaway. Faye Dunaway. And she just sort of like unaware that he's concerned about the name on the envelope. Just reads it out. Sam? We are all fade away, but especially you today. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's jump to. Well, Gabe is. If I'm fade away, then Gabe is Warren Beatty egging me on. Yeah, totally, totally. I'll take it. <laughs> all right, but worth. Let's move on to the Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage in Gone in sixty seconds. Uh, Sam, starting with you, which character steals the cake? For the most ludicrous name. There's a there's a smorgasbord in both films, I think. I think uh, Cougar is a bit of a ludicrous name. Pooch. Pooch is terrible. Pooch is terrible. And Rock, Roke or whatever, however they pronounce it. I feel like they weren't confident in their pronunciation whenever they said Roke's name. But maybe I'm going to give it to Roke for the losers as a nomination. And in the A-team... I think Face is a pretty stupid name, personally. Yeah, it's from the TV show, but it, I agree. It sounds stupid. I mean, it's meant to imply that he's handsome. He's got a handsome face. Yeah. Couldn't they call him something more like handsome? Gabe. What? You want to call the character handsome? <laughs> no, I don't, but I don't want to call him Face. F- face man. <clears throat> they should have called him Me Too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. C- Cancelled. Uh, um. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think like B like B A Baracus Hannibal like they're they're like silly names, but they're not like earlier. I said this movie's got like a similar plot to The Specialist, and in The Specialist, Sly's character is named Ray Quick. Like that's a fucking cool name, <laughs> Ray Quick. You know, it's oh, awesome. Um, all right, uh, who's it going to? Face or Pooch? Or The Specialist? I think <laughs> The Specialist. <laughs> 
I think give it to Face because it's just a silly name. Pooch is I can I could I could have a friend named Pooch, but I would never call my friend Face. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right, Face. Bradley Cooper, your award is waiting for you. You can put aside those other Oscar nominations because this is the real one. All right, the Memento Award, named for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatched these movies. Sam, starting with you, the losers. I forgot Idris Elba was in it, which is terrible. But it, you know, as well as seeing it with my ex-wife who left me, I was probably <laughs> a little a little bit stoned at the time. So there you go. <laughs> uh, uh, Gabe. Um, oh, John Hamm cameo, I guess, for... Oh, yeah, that too. Wait, which is that? Is that the Losers or the A-Team? Fuck, I can't even remember. That's the A-Team. The A-Team. Sure. That, that's still my vote. I actually wrote down a scene. I actually have got John Hamm as well. But the ludicrousness of that scene, which we haven't even talked about somehow, where they literally, or not literally, but they do a version of the ball and cup trick at the end of the film to resemble the logic of a magic trick with like pyrotechnics and like moving enormous shipping containers to distract from, I guess, the implied audience that it happened to be looking at the dock from a front-on perspective like it's the theatre. It's ridiculous. It's That's that's the A-team, isn't it? Yeah. No, but both these movies, they sure do love a shootout at a dockyard. Oh, of course. Yes, you're right. Nothing like some containers. Yeah, no, like all of these movies always end up with some kind of showdown at a, you know, a commercial shipping yard. But that that scene you're talking about, um, Ben, with the, the cup trick, that, that's an example of what I was talking about, how they, they when they intercut the the planning of a heist with the performance of the heist and I just don't like it and that was like the last example of it in this film and I was over it by then plus I wasn't buying Bradley Cooper performing that trick either he was very slow well yeah and it's pretty slow doing it with giant shipping containers as well exactly <laughs> uh, all right Gabe you were John Ham weren't you I was John Ham oh and I also forgot that the nuclear bombs were giant eggs. In The Losers. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, that was ludicrous. Oh, yeah. That's funny. I think both films win. Okay. Let's go to the Die Hard Award. Uh, Did any of these films inspire a crop of clones, much like Die Hard did with Under Siege? I can't. I mean, this is pretty common, the whole idea of a group of heroes that become anti-heroes having to sort of seek to clear their name. But nothing jumps out right now. It's usually a, a, a person, isn't it? Mission Impossible owns this genre. Oh, of course. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, totally. Totally. Gabe? Yeah, 100%. These these are not original plots, are they? No. All right. It's come to that time of the podcast, gentlemen. The Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, starring Jason Patrick, which you guys love so much who might have actually killed that film because he took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and then tried to create drama on a slow, sluggish cruise ship because Jason Patrick ruins movies. No, he doesn't. So <laughs> so imagine this. Let's say we're sitting there with a Hollywood executive and there's an opportunity to pitch a sequel to The Losers or The A-Team. So they're both based on pre-existing intellectual property about dishonoured military operatives seeking redemption and revenge after being betrayed on a secret mission. So which film do we make a sequel to and what's our pitch to make it? 
go. Well, you see, Ben, the losers very smartly left Jason Patrick alive at the end. So my suggestion would be to get that character and just stick him in anything. Agreed. <laughs> Done. Oh, like a spin-off? Like, is it a spin-off where you lose the rest of the cast and there's a whole new group of disavowed CIA operatives and Jason Patrick is actually the one common thread with both films? Or do you try and bring back the other actors who are actually pretty famous now? Chris Evans, Idris Elba, Jeffrey Morgan Dean, Zoe Saldana, the guy with the hat. <laughs> the guy with the hat. I think, yeah, we've got to do the losers for Jason Patrick and the the cast. I think, you know, that alone would skyrocket the, the budget quite significantly. What about a movie where a group of disavowed uh, CIA agents go up against another group of disavowed CIA agents and both groups Ooh. And both groups think they're the protagonists of the movie and it turns out it's just the A-team fighting the losers because villain Jason Patrick has done that thing, you know, where he's decided the best way to wipe them both out is to pit them against each other. I'm into it. So Jason Patrick is basically uh, Mark Zuckerberg from Batman vs Superman as in like the character played by Jesse Eisenberg, where he, through in a very elaborate way, gets Batman to fight Superman. Jason Patrick, similarly, is the puppet master pulling the strings. And do we discover that uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan's character and Liam Neeson's character have um, mothers with the same name? Yeah, maybe they're actually twins. Totally. Fraternal twins. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I like about any film that reverses your assumptions, and I've mentioned this before in the podcast, but I love at the end of uh, I Am Legend where there's that moment, which isn't as good in the film but you've seen it elsewhere, where everything's reconceived and you thought someone was the baddie and they're the goodie. And you see it again in I think it was the second Guardians of the Galaxy. No, Captain Marvel, where that whole idea where one man's terrorist, another man's freedom fighter, and basically Ben Mendelsohn's alien character, who you think is a typical alien out to destroy humans, transpires to actually be essentially like a freedom fighter and just looking after his family. I like that. Now, that film didn't nail it, but I like this idea, Gabe, where they both think they're the right guy, they're the goodies, but to the other, they're the baddies. That's a really cool concept. And you wouldn't necessarily even have to have the actual branded losers against the branded A-team, but the concept could be the same where you do a sequel to either film, but there's just another group of guys, a bit like those, um, those you know, private sector uh, ex, you know, SWAT team wearing polo shirts in the A-team. Like they could think that they're the goodies, right? Totally. Totally. Well, Jason Patrick thinks he's the goodie in the losers. He says it. He says, I'm the good guy. I'm trying to save the world. All right, so let's walk it through. How does that film look? Is it basically the same sort of beat to beat to beat where it's one team against the other and at the very end of the film there's some moment of revelation where Jason Patrick, you know, pulls back the figurative curtain and reveals that he's played one against the other? Because that always can be a bit tricky to sell on screen. I think I think we could pull it off. What was that James McAvoy movie where it was him and Jessica Chastain and they released two movies and one was from his point of view and one was from her point of view? I don't know. Is it like Letters from Iwo Jima and Flags of Our Fathers? Yeah, kind of, kind of. Although there's not really crossovers in that or I don't think there was from memory. This was like they had, had a t- Beatles song title, like Bang Bang Maxwell Silver Hammer or something. Fuck, what was it called? 
I'm not familiar with that. But I do think, actually, while I'm here, the, the Batman versus Superman would have been better as 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 two films from different perspectives. Have have two 90-minute films, Batman Dawn of Justice and Superman Dawn of Justice. And you start off Batman versus Superman with um, Bruce Wayne going through Metropolis being destroyed and then have the whole film from his perspective and we don't see certain things that clue us in. And it ends with him not killing Superman. And then Superman Dawn of Justice, the same movie from his perspective, we're inside Capitol Hill, and then it ends with his death. So here's the thing. The start of Batman v Superman is awesome, where you see basically the end of Man of Steel. Yeah, it's great. From the perspective of um, Bruce Wayne. And that's cool. The problem is sustaining that kind of perspective over one and a half hours gets pretty boring because you know what's going to happen. I reckon you could do it. Yeah, you could do it. Would it be any good? Eh. Yeah. It'd be better than the movie turned out to be. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> uh, Gabe, I think the film you're talking about was The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby. Oh, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I was way off with and there was- Bang Bang Maxwell Silver Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the one where the disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, him, is James McAvoy's perspective and the disappearance, her- is Jessica Chastain's. And there's actually then one called Them, which is both combined. So, okay. I think I think we're onto something here. I think the idea of having the losers versus the A-team, but, um, you know, you could have, you don't have to call it losers, you call it losers too, and then the shadowy antagonists are the A-team. We don't see a lot about them. And then we have the sequel movie from the A-team's perspective, and then it conclude. It has to conclude in the the latter release. So it has to come together with the latter release, and the and the. F- I feel it's to come together at a dock. <laughs> yeah, that's right. With like shipping containers and so on. <laughs> oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. It has to come to come together at a dock. I suppose the other way of playing it is that they actually have both been played by Jason Patrick's villain, and they're both baddies. That's another way of looking at it. Ooh. So they both think they're goodies. And they both turn out to be baddies because he's a villain. And they always thought he was CIA the whole time. That's one way of playing it. Well, that's uh, as I steeple my fingers and think about the moral ambiguity that we're introducing, what, like they, they both fire white phosphorus at each other and commit war crimes. And at the end, they're like, oh, dang. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> are, we, are we the baddies? You know? <laughs> um, okay. Is it, are there any particular beats you want to hit in this particular story where you kind of like, yeah, you sort of like try and turn the thumb screws on those moral conundrums. Yeah, when Chris, when Chris Evans' character and Bradley Cooper's character finally meet and realise they're kind of just the same guy and then maybe they bang. <laughs> I was going to say they fall for each other. That's perfect. It's like if they're, if they're both narcissists and they both see each other and fall for each other, is that perfect? They have found true love. <laughs> yes, but Chris Evans' character in The Losers is, is, is hopeless with women and uh, – Bradley Cooper is is Don Juan. So really Jeffrey Dean Morgan fulfills the role of Hannibal and Face in The Losers because he's the he's the womanizer. Okay, how about this pitch? They find out at the end of the second act with 20 30 minutes to go in the film that they've both been played and one is not the baddie or one is not the goodie as they had originally perceived. And now they realise they've both been played by Jason Patrick. So they come together to be the ultimate losers, the ultimate A-team. They're the 
a losers. Oh, and they take down Jason Patrick. What if? What if? What if they're being played the whole time by Jason Patrick and they don't know? But then Ethan Hunt comes in <laughs> and lets them know what's happening, and um, and it's a it's a it's a triple crossover. It turns out they were all on the knock list. That's right. Oh yeah, every movie with a knock list. That's it. Throw some Bourne. Yes. Old mate Matt Damon turns up. You know. I know. Fuck Jason Bourne. Yeah. yeah, but that's another movie where there's got like a list of like every undercover covert operative. That's true. They just love a knock list, don't they? And isn't isn't Spectre like that as well? Yeah, totally. Spectre, same thing. They're all there. They're all there. So here's our pitch. It's basically record of Ralph. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes! Record like Ralph of spy movies where they all come together. But to save money, what we'll do is we'll shoot a lot of the actors from behind but wearing the same clothes, the same hair. We might even, if we wanted to, because you could actually use, uh, you know, what do you call that kind of thing where you change their face? Um, face app. Oh, I was going to say use face app, right? Deep fake. No, but I was going to say deep fake. Then I thought, what if you actually, in the film, and this is subject to, uh, you know, likeness legalities, they use the Mission Impossible masks. So you actually have people looking like Ethan Hunt or James Bond or James Bourne. Jason Bourne? In the film. Jason Bourne in the film. It's actually James Bourne in this one. It's like getting um, <laughs> Stephen Connery, you know, like. <laughs> James Bourne and Jason Bond. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Sure. I love it. So basically it's an unofficial record like Ralph of the spy genre, which starts off for the first act and second act as being just the losers against the A-team. They find out a knock list that Jason Patrick has and the third act, we get Bourne, we get Bond. Who else do we get? Ethan Hunt, all coming together in the film. And we have basically a backup plan as in production to somehow represent them without their names, but using words like knocklist, which people recognise, maybe showing people like lighting fuses, if you will. And that's, I think, how we make, guys, a sequel to both The Losers and The A-Team. Great. I mean. What do we call it? Knockoff list. I love it. That's great. The knockoff <laughs> list. Have that knock. Have that knock knocked up. N o c c e d. Knocking one out. <laughs> have that big knockers. But okay, well, well that's all right. Oh, come on, Ben. <laughs> Pull. Hop, just no, maybe not. <laughs> oh, so the other ideas weren't ludicrous, but that one is. <laughs> well, yeah, you've gone too far, mate. You know. I just tried basically merging uh, subject to intellectual property. No, no, we, we understand what you did there, Ben. You don't, there's not a, there's not a deepness to it. This is the point of the meeting where me and Gabe tell the executive that we're not tied to Ben. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, we don't have to. I'm like the, uh, I'm the Charlotte Coffley of the group. Yeah, it's not a. Just cut him, cut him loose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And that's how we make a film called The B Plan Losers. Mm. All right, that's, I think, time to tie a bow on it, guys. So, Sam, a big thanks in advance for you editing this episode and making it sound so good. <laughs> oh, man, thank you. I'll tell you what, these are like <laughs> the three The three headers are harder to edit than the two headers. <laughs> yeah, but, Sam, you're so good. Oh, thanks, Gabe. Thanks, man. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> uh, Sam? Where can our listeners find your musings online this week? Uh, show to, at Showtown Sound on Instagram. And also, I've got to tell the audience overseas, make sure you go and see Baby Teeth at the cinema with a mask on 
if you're in an affected area or stream it on demand when it's available. It's an it's a fantastic film. It's it's a, it's been released in America, but it's um it's coming out here in Australia soon as well. Um, it's one of those very special films that you don't get to work on very often. Awesome. So that's Baby Teeth, one word, and you can also yeah, directed by Sh- directed by Shannon Murphy, and it's got Ben Mendelsohn in it. Um, which 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 has got Gabe hooked already. No, oh, mate, I'm there. Love it. So if you like it. Animal Kingdom, you like um, a place between the pines or beyond the pines, beyond the pines or um, Rogue One or Captain Marvel, Captain Marvel, then yeah, you'll enjoy Baby Teeth. Same actor, but a very different story. Um, cool. Yeah, I've heard great things about it, Sam. Like it's had really good reviews, and I've heard a lot of American podcasters sort of put in their top ten for the year. So that's pretty high kudos. Yeah, the ringer, the ringer put it in their top twenty five for the year, which is which is pretty cool. Oh, that's fantastic. That's great. Well, that's the most yeah. listened to podcast in the world. So that's great publicity for an Aussie indie movie. That's awesome, man. Yeah, which it would have cost very like like. It would have cost less than ten million to make easily. So, um, yeah, it's it's good for the for it to be punching above its weight like that. The Aussie battler. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, Gabe, how about you? Uh, Twitter at Gabe Dowrick. Awesome, and I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.com/slash Ben Phelps. And you can find this podcast and my other podcasts all in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening, folks. Thank you, Sam, for joining us for this particular show. This was fantastic. Thanks for having me. Um, Guys at home, I hope you enjoyed the show. hope it's brought a smile to you as you've been listening in your earbuds. If you like it, please uh, share the word. Uh, The best publicity is recommendations from mates, so pass it on. And everyone, take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Sam. See you, Gabe. Goodbye now. Bye, Ben. Bye, Ben.